Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, February 6th, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. I need to tell you that though I am citing this as Monday 2623, uh, this is in fact, we are recording this in fact on Sunday night. So if news breaks or things happen that we we don't get to or we seem to be uh, outpaced by events, uh, you'll know that we're that's because we're actually recording this about 13 hours before we usually do. So with that proviso, let me introduce, of course, with me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist at American Enterprise Institute, senior fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us, Christine's uh, boss, Kaina, uh, yeah. American Enterprise Institute, <laughs> Puba, editor of National Affairs, commentary contributor, Yuval Levin. Yuval, thank you so much for being with us. On Thanks this. for having me. It's great to join you. Okay, so uh, Yuval, uh, we spent the last four days in this bizarre news cycle involving the Chinese balloon. With the term balloon is obviously uh, a misnomer because it conjures up cute, you know, the red balloon or you know your kid's balloon, and obviously this is a highly sophisticated uh, upper atmosphere spy device that is supposedly somebody said that it was the length of a couple of football fields maybe so i don't know if it's a zeppelin but you know we keep calling it a balloon because it's funny clearly there's nothing funny about this thing uh except for the fact that uh we we are lost now in a thicket of what exactly happened it was of course uh popped uh by the uh, U.S. Air Force, I guess, um, or I, I don't actually know which 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 uh, of our services. Uh, uh, it's the Air Force. It was the Air Force. Okay, so the shot Air down, Force, not popped. Shot yeah, down. I know. So <laughs> shot down uh, over the Atlantic. As they will tell you. It, yes, after it had traversed the length of the continental uh, United Continental North America, and uh, supposedly now divers are trying to retrieve everything that was on that was on this. Um, balloon but uh we are now lost in this question of was the Biden administration feckless did it not shoot down did it give the chinese four days worth of uh hot intelligence by not shooting the balloon down earlier we're told biden ordered the balloon shoot down at the beginning of the week and then they didn't do it it was either on monday or on wednesday this is not clear then we are told that uh, maybe we got intelligence from watching how the balloon moved across the continent that was valuable, or that we were jamming the balloon's transmissions back to China so that China wasn't getting information, or that um, you know we weren't shooting it down because we didn't want to do damage to civilians. Or that what it's not a big deal because in fact there were three previous balloon incursions, um, or four once during the Biden administration and three during the Trump administration, and then we get information from some Trump officials who say there wasn't no balloon during the Trump administration. I would have known, 
And Marco Rubio, who was on the Intelligence Committee and was on um, a Sunday show this uh, the, this weekend, said that as far as he knew, there was evidence that that there had been one of these balloons over the ocean near the U.S. shoreline, but not over the continental United States. That this was a new escalation, and that the fact that we didn't shoot it down means, as as Rubio said, that we're a nation in decline. Um, so we have political, ideological, we have spin, we have different kinds of spin coming out of the Pentagon that is unofficial since the Pentagon isn't making formal statements. And this, these are things that are being leaked to David Ignatius of the Washington Post or to the AP. We have no idea whatsoever what the truth or lack of truth is. Were there balloons? Were there balloons during the Trump administration or not? Were, you know, did the, did we jam this? Did we jam that? Okay, Yuval, as a, as a, Longtime Washington watcher, as a former government official, uh, as somebody who is a student of spin, um, where what what do you can you give me just some sense of uh, what you think uh, on earth is going on here? Well, first, I think it would be great if we could start calling it a zeppelin. That would really be an improvement to the public debate in a lot of ways. Um, I, I guess my sense of this has been that this is like a kind of iceberg. That what we're seeing on the surface is a very small part of a bigger story that has probably been going on for a long time. And you can see in the faces of administration officials the frustration they feel at not being able to tell that story because it might make them look a little bit less stupid here if they could, but they can't. And they're stuck with a public story that is just weird um, and that uh, you know doesn't doesn't make anybody look very good. I do think that the interesting question here is why they went public with this one and why did they do it when they did? Um, it's perfectly reasonable to believe that this has happened before, that they've dealt with this in different ways, that um, they were going to one way or another deal with this here. And that, you know, there would have been a story about some people in North Carolina seeing something weird in the sky and it would have uh, it would have made sense to a few conspiracy theorists and then gone away when they shot it down. But instead, we've been watching this thing for the last week. Um, and, you know, it's been sort of tracked and traced. And gradually, everybody's sort of wondering if it's over their house right now. And I think the, the, the question to be answered is really, why was the public story this way? Um, did they decide it was time to press the Chinese and force them to confront these, these uh, aggressive actions they've been taking? Did they not intend to? And somebody saw it. I, I'm I'm not sure how to think about that, but it certainly seems like this is part of a longer story that we don't have and aren't going to have, and so it's going to leave us uh, kind of wondering about the parts of the iceberg we see above the ground when there's just a lot more to it that I just think we're not going to know anytime soon. I mean, look, Noah. Let me ask you this. So the the story that came out. And again, we have all this blizzards of information are coming out from different background sources. We don't know where they are. We know a little bit. Some of them were told to come out of the Pentagon, but that uh, they knew it was there and then they weren't going to say anything. And then somebody in Billings, Montana, saw it in the sky and took a picture and then they had to go public. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical of that story. Uh, and here's why, because because of that, the secretary of state, Anthony Blinken, canceled his trip 
to China that he was already he was going to go on simply because somebody in Billings saw the balloon and therefore it became a matter of public record and therefore Blinken had to to make a good showing of the hawkishness of the Biden administration cancel his trip to China when he knew four days earlier that the balloon existed according to this other timeline and he didn't cancel the trip to China. I assume that the cancellation of the trip to China means that this was a very serious event and that there are weird efforts to downplay its significance. Yeah, they have a balloon. We have balloons. We're watching them. They're watching us. There have been three, four incidents before this. Canceling a trip that was planned for, I mean, again, like, I you know, you, you've all, you weren't in the, you know, you didn't do foreign policy, but canceling a scheduled kind of state visit. I know it's he's not the head of state, but I mean, the secretary of state to China for formal meetings with the Chinese government, that is a big, that is not a small deal. And uh, it's not done for PR purposes. Obviously, this was a serious matter. And then the weird thing is who spins it? That, yeah, whatever, you know, we do it, they do it, balloon, it's a balloon, we can block the telemetry and we can interrupt the Chinese and all of this. If all of that were the case and we were so sanguine about it, Blinken wouldn't have staged this very public protest of China's actions by staying home. I don't know if that's true. Uh, Call me naive. But the simplest explanation, which tends to be the correct one, is that the government behaved with in a spectacularly inept fashion. That's not hard for me to believe. From what we understand in public reports, this thing was observable over the Aleutians. And we, why wouldn't the Pentagon think they could get away with it, especially if there were prior incursions along these lines that stayed at a high enough altitude that they weren't observed by a guy with a photo with a telephoto lens that published a picture in in the newspaper. And then all of a sudden, the, the administration that thinks they can get away with it can't get away with it and has to stage a dramatic protest. That doesn't sound outside the realm of believability to me. Uh, just first of all, a couple of details from your opening bit. It's not one balloon, it's two. Apparently, there's a simultaneous Incursion, also observable at an observable altitude over South America, Latin America, which is unique. I mean, one of the things that we've been buried with in this blizzard of information is technical questions, technical details. Did we jam the thing? What can it see? Is it supposed to see anything? How is this better than satellites? Blah, 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 blah. It's not a technical question. The whole issue became political the minute this thing became observable by the naked eye. Was that deliberate? Was that an accident? Is it a provocation? Is it designed to to uh, to test our capabilities, to attract a response? And is this a pretext for an escalatory response on their part? All of those are political questions. None of them can be answered by anyone except the president himself. And that all that seems to be the singular question before us now. What was Chinese intentions? Not what this thing can do. All we know, we have these facts in front of us. We know that there was a balloon. We know that it was spotted over Billings, Montana. We know that that matter became public. We know that the Secretary of State canceled his trip to China because of it. And we know that after a couple of days, it was shot down uh, over the Atlantic. We don't know anything else. Well, we do know that the Chinese claimed it was a weather balloon and hence, you know, the, suggesting that the, it had no surveillance or, or spying uh, mission, um, which we we've 
our officials said that's ridiculous, but they've claimed it was a weather balloon. And now they've acted very angry about the fact that we shot down their weather balloon. <laughs> so it's almost as if we were they were testing to see if we would repeat the narrative that they had given about what this was. I mean, there's a story. And that's why I think you're right. We need to hear from the administration directly from Biden about what what this is, what happened, some clarity on what the administration's story is going to be about this, whether or not that's the full story. As Yuval says, I think you're absolutely right. It's not the full story. I think there was another there, there was news coming out just before we started recording that another one of these balloons uh, went down off the coast of Hawaii like, you know, a year ago or something. So they, these have been around. But was China testing us to see if we would, if, if the Biden administration would tell the American people, oh, it's just an errant weather balloon? Right. Or why was there was a kinetic response hey, to it? But 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 hey, also, but why would China do this right now, um, g- given the prospect of Blinken's trip? I mean, that's that's it. This, it wasn't like they were they were sort of um, uh, choosing a moment of no particular significance to to sort of run this test, if 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 that's what it was. Um, it was more possibly a sort of shot across the bow. I mean, but 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 I, I also think that um, the the idea that this was just a, um, a, an inept response um, on the administration's part, I'm skeptical of that because uh, there was nothing stopping them from saying, okay, so someone someone sees this thing, they publish a picture of it. So okay, we're looking into it. I don't know. It's a UFO. What are UFOs? That I mean, that's that's what UFOs yeah. are. You 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 that you get rid of it. That that is that is good enough. Okay, here's the puzzle. They spent the better part of 48 hours saying it was no big deal, only to turn on a dime and shoot it out of the sky with a sidewinder no. missile. Okay, that, but they the stories they, don't line up. But they didn't. To be fair to them, we are now conflating the kind of spin of the administration's lackeys and wannabes and everybody you know on social media with what we we're being told by what whatever the leaks of the administration were which were Biden's taking it seriously Biden was brief Biden's known about it all week Lincoln cancels his trip all those people who were saying it's no big deal, were in fact belied by the behavior and the way the Biden administration was officially talking and behaving. When I say we don't know anything, I mean all we know are these facts that the balloon ha- the balloon was seen on Thursday, it was shot down on Saturday. The Secretary of State canceled his trip in between those two events and the and the administration was also at pains to say the president knew that this was there, that he had actually said that he wanted to shoot it down, but that the Pentagon had said it would not be safe for civilian populations and that they were going to wait until it went out over the Atlantic. We know that those that that fact may be true because they waited until it went out over but the Atlantic doesn't, doesn't before they shot having, it down. doesn't track with having identified it over the Aleutians, not a population center. No, I mean... It's the continental United States that unnerved people, clearly. It was the fact that it was near actual military facilities that you could look at. None of it tracks with anything is what I'm saying. And so I think everybody needs to be very careful about picking and choosing details from this week because half of them are not true and half of them are, you know, exculpatory of the Biden administration and half of them are attacks on the Biden administration 
and the attacks may be right, and the Republicans may be right that the administration was insanely feckless and was showing weakness toward the Chinese, or it may, or they may be wrong. I but mean, they have just... they have to answer the basic question. Let's just look at Montana. We have a lot of very crucial uh, missile technology based there, right? I mean, we have we have some of our nukes there. We have you know bases there. What did they see and why were they looking if they were? I mean, these are just the kinds of things I'm thinking back to Cold War era when presidents were required to be very careful about, you know, all the stuff that was going on, you know, through through our spy networks and information that, that, that they knew, but that the public didn't need to know, but still explaining when things happen. Right. Uh, this is a moment where he needs to explain what's happening. And I, I do think it speaks to the broader confusion, not just of messaging, but of policy with, with regard to China. Our country is in a weird moment right now where we don't have a very clear policy economically. We're, we're very beholden to China. There's a lot of investment in China. There's a lot of Chinese investment here. It, it, it's almost as if there's a lot of tiptoeing and no clear message about what did they see? Why did they want to see it? Is this hostile? Like These are just basic things that the American people should be able to have those questions answered by the, the administration. Okay, I think that's part of a very war. important broader point, too, that the this president has never really spoken to the public about how he thinks about China and how the United States should think about China. And if th- that really has to be part of, of a State of the Union address after the week that we've been through here, just some sense of what, basically, how do we approach this? Do we see them as an adversary that is constantly testing our limits, which it seems like we obviously should? Do we Do we think of them in one context or another, Joe Biden has never given the public a sense of how he as president is thinking about this first and foremost strategic challenge for the country. And it's really past time he did. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about history here. That's a very important uh, analysis here. But when we're talking about this, thing, which was an intelligence gathering a spy operation over the United States, right? I mean, that that it was without question. So... One of the few secrets that has ever been kept in the world of intelligence forever has to do with our our intel has to do with some of these capabilities, particularly satellites in the sky and all of this. And I think about the fact that it was not until the end of the Cold War that we learned that there was a plane called the Blackbird, a high atmosphere craft that was built in 1960. They could fly from New York to L.A. in an hour, in an hour, and that we used to do spying over Russia and other places at 80,000 feet. The secret of the existence of this plane was kept for more than 30 years. Nobody outside, there were like 11 people in the government, in each government who knew about the Blackbird's existence, and it was kept. The fact that that secret could be kept leads me to believe that other secrets can be kept when they are of a sufficiently astounding nature that the Soviets could never know that we had this ability to look down on them in the way that we look down on them. And here we have the Chinese coming at us and it all raises questions that are one of the reasons that I think you've always right that we're not going to get answers to this because the more we answer, the more we'll raise questions about what we have and what we know and what we see. And if in fact they are so sanguine, if they are truly sanguine about the nature of the Chinese 
intelligence gathering, they would only be sanguine like that because we're a generation ahead of them. But we wouldn't want them to know that we're a generation ahead of them. So I just think that this is very ambiguous and it is, you know, it's like be, it's ridiculous to get all high high in, on one's high horse and say it really would have been great if maybe the Republicans had had like chilled out and like not attacked the commander in chief in the middle of a foreign policy, potential foreign policy crisis and like held their fire and like went to briefings and heard what the hell was going on before they opened the mouth. I mean, that's like, I now I'm being like some kind of sentimental anachronistic, you know, politics you know, John, ends at the water's edge. Yeah. But I, I'm normally inclined to that same sort of approach to these things, even if it's a president I don't like and an and a administration that I have a lot of problems with. Uh, I, I realized for me, this all reminded me of of Biden and the administration's handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and reminded me of the way that he and Pentagon officials and others got up there day after day and told just bald lies about what was going on, about what they expected, about about the um, the drone strike that went wrong. Um, and I no longer extend the that that benefit of the doubt um sort of in in the name of uh uh a kind of patriotism in uh in the way that i used to um with this group um that that was that was just too stark uh for me but it is very true and i and i think other people probably feel the same way but this is a very sticky sticky tricky situation because i'm someone who i i believe fervently in in uh, the importance of government secrecy under certain circumstances and transparency uh, in other cases. It seems what happened here is that the boundary between the two was sort of punctured uh, when no one expected it to be. And no one knows what, what to do. How, how do you balance those interests? Pun intended, I assume. I, I actually wasn't even thinking of that. Yeah. I was just thinking that I know Trump did a truth social thing in which he said I would never have and they should shoot the balloon down and all of that. He has actually been reasonably quiet about this for five days. He said one thing and then he didn't say much else. I don't hear, you know, the senior military officials, you know, I, I mean, uh, I can't remember their names anymore, like Esper or this one or that one coming out and saying, I don't know. We never had a balloon this way, or they we did, had three balloons. Did. Well, who? Esper and uh, John Bolton said said I'm unaware of this after the yeah, charges but he, came out. Bolton, Bolton was gone by by the what the end of 2017. I'm, I'm so just saying. Doesn't, Here, no, but okay, I'm but saying it doesn't. It doesn't okay. matter. Again, back. This is back to the technical. I'm going to drag everybody back to the political. The technical stuff. It's not. It's not comparable. The idea here that they're they're leveraging this this question as though it's anything other than a non sequitur. That Who's maybe, the maybe here? balloons, I don't Who's the, the, the Biden administration, Biden administration oh. and its allies, the idea that there was some sort of a comparable incursion into American airspace, perhaps. But there's nothing comparable about an, a, a surveillance balloon flying at 60,000 feet for the naked eye to see to be rele revealed in local newspapers for the administration to scramble and then shoot it down with a Sidewinder missile. There's no comparable event here. Right. That's this true. It's a Suisionaris event. So you can't you can't argue that there's some sort of a of an analogous situation with the Trump administration that we just didn't know about because we would have known about it. 
I mean, it's just it, it's just head spinning to figure out that on a third that that basically they're like, okay, yeah, there's the surveillance balloon. And the president said, shoot it down. And then we said no, because it might hurt people if we shot it down. So the president said, okay, don't shoot it down. Let's wait till it go- goes over the water. Really? Okay, so does that mean that you're only saying you don't have to shoot it down because it'll hurt people? Or are you saying don't shoot it down because actually we're jamming there we're you know we're staging things for them to see in montana or we're jamming their telemetry or we're this or we're that that's where the public and this is actually where i do think it's irresponsible of republicans it's not irresponsible whatever i it's, it's, they don't know they don't know what's going on and i appreciate that the Biden administration was awful and lied about what was going on in afghanistan but we're talking here about things that honestly, I said this on Friday, we shouldn't know. Like Christine, you're saying they need to give explain what happened. They don't need to explain what but happened. They need to say something, right? I mean, they're going to have to because this is where the conspiracy yeah. theorizing and the speculation and the wild, you know, sort of polarized uh, uh, politicizing of these sorts of things happens. There's a vacuum right now, and and Yuval's right. He's got a State of the Union on what Tuesday night. He, I'm sure it's already been written. They're probably crashing and rewriting those sections. But he can't talk about being a cooperative economic partner with with China now. So he's got to say something. And I think even if we don't get the details of what they were doing, what he has to say as the leader of the country is: we understand that this was a was a was a risk in terms of you know security. It was not a. Th- we made sure it was not a threat to the American people. We made sure that they did not gather information that they shouldn't have, and leave it at that. Like that's vague, but it doesn't tell the details of how we do any of this stuff. Maybe it's not even a hundred percent true, but it is a statement of intention in terms of our posture towards a what is apparently a pretty hostile foreign power. I think yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah. they have to do something on purpose. It, it just seems like they're they, they've been dragged back and forth. There is always the kind of Israeli approach of just like strange things happen, and the government says, "Well, strange things happen," and it, it's just how they always do it. And so the public says, "Okay, we're not going to know what that thing was." But the the United States doesn't really work that way. And if they wanted to do that, they could have done that, I guess, here and just let it be seem like it was a UFO. That's not what they did. They're just doing all kinds of things that don't add up. And it seems like ultimately they haven't decided what on purpose they're going to do and say here. And whether they're being feckless under the surface in their actual relationship with China, they're certainly being feckless in how they approach this as a matter of of it being a public story. Absolutely. Okay. Now, let me just uh, take a break and talk to you guys for a minute about our first sponsor today, Express vpn look um why do you need express vpn so you know how netflix has you know provides you with things right you can says you should watch this you should watch do you know that netflix has lots of different content all across the world for lots of different countries and you can only get the stuff when you're listening to me pretty much although we have listeners outside the united states but in america right so you you but if you have expressvpn it actually will allow you to change your online location in the settings of your 
browser and whatever. And so you could look at programs and programming on Netflix that is not available in the United States under Netflix's contracts or whatever with its content providers, but it's perfectly legal. Um, and uh, and and this is something you can, you know, if there's something's left and you want to see, uh, you want to see something that's no longer on Netflix, you can search for it in, you know, go to another country, search for it and watch it there. You get blazing fast speeds from ExpressVPN faster uh, than other VPNs. Uh, it's compatible with all your devices, phones, laptops, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. Servers in 94 different countries. This is the real capper here. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash commentary. Don't forget to use this link, expressvpn.com slash commentary, to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. You've all, before the balloon became the story of the stories, I contacted you and I said, will you come on? Because I want to talk about an interesting sociological political factoid that was that that was raised by the sta astoundingly stunning job numbers on Friday morning that we that the country had created almost 600,000 new jobs in the month of January the unemployment rate had 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 dropped to the lowest point since 1969 although in 2019 it had also dropped to the lowest point since 1969 so this is lower than then but we were still in the three and a half percentage range uh, during the Trump administration. Nonetheless, this is a little bit lower. Um, more people at work numerically, that is 150 million jobs or something like that in the United States. And nobody in the world of, of economic prognostication saw this at all. The consensus, as they say, when people do, they talk, they call every economic forecaster, they call every investment bank, every hedge fund that does these statements and said, how many jobs were there going to be? And the consensus, according to everything, was 220,000. And there were almost three times as many. And this has now gone on for a year where the people say we're not going to get any jobs or we get a lot of jobs or they say we're going to get a lot of jobs and then we don't get a lot of jobs. And this is going to grow this. And what this says to me, among many other things, is that there is a field of economics called macroeconomics that attempts to gauge, measure, and understand the entire economy or, you know, entire industries or the entire economy or even the global economy. And it just doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work. And the entire way people invest and think about their money and think about the future and all of that is governed by people who use these tools that are clearly not sufficient to the day in this immensely complex American economic machine and world economic machine, interdependent global supply chains, you know, this, that, the other thing, nothing, these things that were once, maybe they weren't that good ever, but they were certainly better than they are now in terms of trying to give people a sense of where things are and where what they should look forward to. And A, do you agree with this 
analysis that I just threw here, speaking as an economic illiterate. I'm just saying I'm <laughs> watching this and I know, you know. Well, especially speaking yeah. as, an, as, as an economic illiterate, because I am particularly dependent on, on these sort of expert voices that I had on some level assumed were unimpeachable, you know, on certain big yeah. questions about well, that's when exactly corrections right. have to come. Yeah. yeah. So Goldman Sachs, for example, issues economic guidance for its clients constantly. And I think if you went back and looked at the last year and a half and you were a Goldman Sachs client, you might say, what am I paying for here? Like you guys. It's that shrugging emoji. Like, hmm? <laughs> yeah, like you guys, you know, if I were sort of like making bets solely based on your predictions or I was, you know, like, I'm not sure I would. You know, I think I would probably have to go somewhere else. Anyway, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is unfair. Maybe, you know, they all, they're always hedged and they always say you never know and there are going to be revisions and all of that. It just strikes me as a very big deal that we think about this $22 trillion economy and where it's going to be and what we're supposed to do with our money in relation to it using advice from people who don't understand it we think, as they would say, understand it way better than we do and may, in fact, understand it less because they have too much data and they have too much self-confidence about what they're seeing. And they therefore predict things based on it that we would never predict because it's not our field. And then they then they just go on and get it wrong. So I would say a few things. I, I think for, for one thing, this has gone on longer than the last couple of years. Um, really since about the the dot-com bubble bursting at the end of the 1990s, our basic macroeconomic models have not really been that useful. And we've been living through one impossible situation after another, where theoretically, you're not supposed to have low inflation and and high unemployment for a long time. And we just had it for 10 years. And nobody could really say why and how this was possible. You, 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 would, you would read the meetings of the Fed minutes and they would all say, well, there's going to be an explosion of inflation soon. Um, and then it just didn't happen for like 10 years. And they, they never really figured out why. Um, we did get inflation after, during and after COVID. Uh, you know, by that point, there really was this driving force. But it's nonetheless true that a lot of, of the basic macro models, which were created to explain the Great Depression, right, which happened almost 100 years ago, and they actually weren't even that good at explaining the Great Depression. But for, <laughs> for quite a while, they, they basically served. There was a relationship between unemployment and inflation that's very important to the Fed. Um, and there were ways of thinking about the business cycle that seemed more or less to fit reality. But in the 21st century, they have not fit reality well at all. And the really striking thing is that you've not seen real breakthroughs in macroeconomics as, as an academic discipline. There are not new names. There are not, you know, the Taylor rule is the governing rule that the Fed still uses. It's it, it makes a lot of sense, or it did. Um, it's been around since the middle of the 1980s, and the world has changed. I mean, we have an entire tech sector which isn't even well explained by GDP. Um, you know, how do you explain the, the the contributions of the internet to productivity? The fact is, 
there's not an answer to that question in macroeconomics. Um, Quite the opposite, right? That's a very important point because there were, we know, gigantic epic-making changes in productivity as a result of tech that right. are all we but We each can invisible. think about our own lives and how it's yeah. changed. Yep. Yeah, and they're all but invisible in a lot of macroeconomic formulae because they don't, because they you can't measure things unless you totally revise every element of your formula when things make other things anachronistic or they where they 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 supersede them when entire portions of industry are eliminated by these you know by machines that can do things that people used to be able to do but yeah. you don't really say okay well you know we're actually twice as productive as we were in the 1970s it doesn't say that you know and so you were then right there we can see how you know this is a very limited tool and the striking thing about it is not that these these 90 and 100 year old tools are not as useful as they used to be it's that there aren't really new tools and you know uh, economics like a lot of of academic disciplines the incentives now are all wrong for coming up with these kind of tools the incentives are to focus on little tiny questions and build your career answering uh, this very, very small thing that you can keep writing journal articles about. There's not an incentive to be a generalist. And this is true throughout the academic world now. And I think one result of that is that academics are just much less useful to the public and to policymakers than they were in the 20th century. You, you think about the two areas where, where the universities were most useful to policymakers. They were macroeconomics on the one hand, and actually foreign policy on the other hand, where theories of how the world is working would come out of elite universities and you'd have kind of Kissinger and Brezhnev who were, who were Harvard professors um, arguing about these things and then serving presidents of different parties. That kind of thing is basically unimaginable now. What happens in the elite academic departments has very, very little to do with the real world. And as a result, a lot of policymakers are really flying blind in areas where they need help from actual uh, academic experts and intellectual guides, and economics is certainly one of those where the, the, they're using old tools, they're asking old questions, and it's really stunning how little help they're getting. Some is coming from think tanks, and think tanks are great, um, but it's uh, it, it, macro is not advanced to keep up with the changing world, no question about it. And I mean... You could say, okay, look, we just have this unbelievably complicated economy. It just wasn't that complicated 50, 60 years ago. It was largely driven, you know, earnings were driven by heavy manufacturing, these gigantic corporations that, you know, were that that employed enormous numbers of people for long periods of time. That's in the United States. There was a certain type of industrial output. You could measure you know, that longevity, how much industrial output in the world there was that was done by the United States, which, you know, it, until the 1960s, but from the end of the Second World War to the 1960s was like half the world's industrial output came from the United States. It was actually, therefore, pretty easy to, not easy, but it was pretty easy to localize economic questions within the borders of the United States and its domestic economy. And now we have this, you know, 
we have the we have the economy in which our our uh, our manufacturing is a lot of it is done abroad under other circumstances, and we do that in order to achieve cost savings for consumers. But it then means we're you know we're we're prey to other kinds of phenomena and all of that. And there is no and the tools didn't um, develop uh, to and and how could they? I well, mean, you know, how, I would say did, what hasn't developed are models, theories of how yeah. the economy works. We actually have a lot more data than we used to uh, in the middle of the 20th century. We have a huge amount of data now, and the Fed has access to massive amounts of information. But how are they supposed to think about the way the economy is now structured and how it works? They really need help on that front. And that kind of work, which is the core of macroeconomics, just has not been happening. And that- yeah, go ahead. And and, uh, and they're flying blind. I mean, the the sense of flying blind yeah. is really amazing. Yeah. J- Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, had a had a press conference after their board meeting last week, and you could just tell. I mean, his answer to every question was, "Well, we're going to see. We'll respond." To no, what happens. The ama- that's the amazing thing, right? That he, they were slamming. They were like raising interest rates, like they were raising them and raising them and raising them, and they said, "You know what? I mean, you know, things are slowing a little. You know, we're gonna." We're not going to go up 50 basis points. We're going to go up 25. We'll see what happens. We'll see, right? Two days later, right. the Fed didn't know the job that were going to be 600,000 new jobs. How, how is that possible? That's what I'm saying. Although we're still- How is it possible that comes as a surprise? What is this like? The Oscar, like they open the envelope and say <laughs> the winner is Moonlight. Like that's not- Okay, but no. the, we we the the jobs numbers we should put in context. We're still missing millions of jobs from pre-pandemic time. So although there was this leap, there are still lots of jobs that have we have not recovered from pre-pandemic times. There are plenty of theories as to why that's the case. But to Yuval's point, that it strikes me as you were describing that that there's another problem with not having these good macroeconomic, not just the theories and the models uh, to test them with, but also um, a story to tell about how the economy might work in the future. And that's that we also have in academia a pretty radical attack on what we already know works on capitalism. There's a new history of capitalism, which wants to kind of turn uh, capitalism into this into this thing that's you know then free enterprise is a pernicious force in our history. And I I think it helps explain a little bit of a young generation that's much more amenable to socialist style um, arguments that sees capitalism as a, just a rapacious evil, even though they themselves are living in it um, among its many uh, benefits and rewards. And there is no other alternative story to tell. And you know, populist arguments on the right have a similar theme. You know, it's everything's broken. We're going to have to just have a populist approach to the economy and. There's no res- there's no sort of thoughtful response to that right now. And there's nothing for policymakers to say, actually, we know this didn't work in the past. We know this did work. Here's here's other trends that we can track. I'm not an economist either, but I've been very concerned about the new history of capitalism in academia because it is having an impact on practical and political decision making for the next generation in terms of how they view the economy, how they view the value and meaning that might be brought to their own work in the future. Well, you know, it's sort of... Um foreign policy uh, there's a foreign policy analogy here which is that um when academics and foreign policy sort of became invested in the idea that um projecting american power is sort of silly because we are a declining power and there's and we can't and we're no good at that anymore and we can't do that that sort of shaped our understanding of geopolitical events 
and 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 our responses. Look, one of the virtues of um, let's say models not working is that the, as long as people sort of start understanding that the things were being done in policy terms that weren't that weren't working well. And uh, they weren't explained by models because models said the other thing was supposed to happen. And they would therefore go back to first principles or common sense. So common sense says if you if you want people to work, you don't subsidize them when they're out of work. If you want if you think it's better for better for them personally, better for the economy to have people working, don't pay them not to work. That was actually a kind of wisdom, like it's like it seems almost not. It's like on the back of a, it's like on a uh, Chinese fortune cookie, but in the 1970s, that wisdom had fled from economic policy making, and Reagan kind of brought it back. I mean, he said, "Look, if you want there to be economic growth in the economy." Stop having the government, which is not productive, taking too much money from the hands of taxpayers. Give it back to taxpayers. They'll spend it and they'll use it and they'll invest it and there'll be more money in the economy and things will grow. That's like, that's not, you need theory to to abandon that kind of common sense. If we're now at a point where we're looking at this and saying all these, you know, Solons and all of these, you know, soothsayers have nothing to say about this. We're going to have no choice, both in the Democratic and in the Republican parties, on the right and on the left, of going to first principles and then seeing how they sound to people, I would say. Like, is Elizabeth Warren's economic wisdom, does it make sense to you as a working person in the world? Or does it make more sense that if you deregulate or you make sure that people have as much of their own money in their own hands as possible, including rich people, that that will actually be better for the economy and for everybody else? And that's a that's an argument that's worth having at the fundamental level as opposed to the kind of sneering academic thing of the last 40, 50, 60 years, which is, well, you don't know. Do you know what the Fed rate is? Do you know what M2 is? M1, M3, Q, you know, quantitative easy, QE3, QE2. You know, if you don't know what these are, I'm not even going to have a conversation with you. I mean, I I know this is sort of like, it's kind of preachy to say. I I, I think that's true, John, but there there is the experience of the last 15 years or so where, some of that common sense seemed not to work out. I mean, I would right. say the argument you heard on the right saying, well, we can't just keep spending like this. That's going to lead to a to a, to a debt crisis. I think that argument did make sense, it, common sense. It made sense to me. It still makes mm-hmm. sense to me. And exactly how that didn't happen is actually quite unclear. Um, and not just to us, but to the the macroeconomists too. I think we don't even have a good theory of what has happened in the 21st century economy. Right. So that, what I'm uh, saying, right. So so all and what you say is absolutely true and we all went through this after when Obama came in and he did the stimulus and he did the and they did this and they did that and they and and there was this whole sense of like including John Taylor, the author of the Taylor rule that you would say, look, 
at some point you're going to throw money down this hole and the hole is going to get full from this money and then the money is going to start plunging out of the hole and that's going to be stagflation but it turned out either the hole was way deeper <laughs> than than we even imagined or that the timeline that people we're looking at was way too short and that we are going to go through a debt crisis that we're on the verge of a gigantic debt crisis it just took 15 or 20 years for it to mature and that you could sort of keep throwing money at it until there was a point at which that was no longer so gonna why work. didn't but it but, hasn't but, happened yet but why didn't someone write the road to debt serfdom you know like some some book that kind of explains i mean right. people have written these well, books. the left wrote the road to debt serfdom right <laughs> they wrote your that's what you you were just referring to about the new history of capitalism right. so the left in the wake of 2008 wrote uh you know Piketty and uh uh i can't remember who his co-author was um wrote he the, doesn't want you to remember either but yeah. wrote the giant <laughs> wrote the giant book on mm -hmm. capitalism that said you know capitalism is bad you know what you know what you know what's great if you just print money nothing bad happens but but Yuval's question is important why why haven't policymakers tried to figure this out I mean obviously they love to continue spending money but there it's almost as if I mean, there is a kind of surreal monopoly money-like uh, tone to so much of the discussion, uh, obviously during COVID, but it seems to continue. They're like the guys playing the blackjack table who keep winning and they just think they're going to continue to win all night, but the house always wins. So at some point we, ha we have to stop spending like we're spending and, and the, the Republicans the funny thing is, don't you know, have it. It's not just policymakers. There's an opening here to become a famous and important academic who, yeah. whose name is known for a hundred years by- yeah explaining what is going on here and right. somehow the the incentives within the academy are so powerfully in the other direction that no one sees the opening to be the new Keynes. we're still talking about john Maynard Keynes. He, he he lived 100 years ago he was he was a great economist but we talk about him still because he was the guy who saw that kind of thing as an opportunity or or hayek and friedman they asked big questions big generalist questions right. they tried to make themselves useful to the public and there's just no one doing that at this moment. And I think in the back of all of what they were talking about, <laughs> for good and ill or for right and wrong, depending on what you want, it was based in this fundamental common sense about how the world yeah. worked, right? I mean, so what Keynes said, well, and about you're going to pay a man human to nature. dig a hole. If you're going to pay a man to dig a hole, it doesn't matter what you put in the hole. What matters is you're paying him to dig that. That would be good to do something valuable with the hole, but the hole is not the issue. It's paying the man that is the issue. That is actually an interestingly difficult thing to so argue. I, as I'm against. listening to this yeah. conversation, it yeah. strikes me that the demand side, based on this report that we're all talking about, demand siders don't have a problem at all. Right. What, what case do they have to make? Sure. They don't. We just we threw a lot of money at demand. Demand surged, and look at all these jobs that were created. So it's us, the supply siders, who are thrashing about at human nature and thirty thousand foot. Uh, well, I think they have some problems to explain. They have to think about like inflation why didn't now. this show up in the labor participation rate? Why isn't exactly. anyone asking where all these people came from? Right, we're saying that we have the the unemployment rate that we had in the nineteen sixties, but we do not really have the unemployment rate we had in the nineteen sixties. We have millions of, of working age men sitting out 
even though wages are high and uh, choosing not to work. We have high inflation that they do need to think about. I think some basic relationships between these forces and ways of thinking about how people make decisions and how the economy works are really wide open questions. I mean, I, I, I just, and there is to me too, an analogy here to foreign policy where there too, there, people are flying blind to an unbelievable degree. I mean, you could walk around the halls of the State Department now and ask anyone you find, what are we doing re in relation to China? What do we actually want? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What's the goal? Or not China, or Russia, or the Middle East. There are no answers to this question, not on the right, not on the left, not at any level, and also not in the academy. And we've just sort of lost the sense that big questions are actually how you move uh, big policy. I mean, there's another way of looking at this, which is there's a kind of, um, I mean, the weird thing is that the macroeconomists still do what they're doing, even though it's not working. That's part of my indictment here. But that um, because nothing happened the way it was supposed to from the Cold War, the end of the Cold War on, you know, it, you weren't supposed to have, you know, we weren't supposed to have the trouble in Iraq that we had we weren't supposed to have the housing meltdown in 2008 we weren't supposed to have the rise of trump in 2015 2016 so much that happened was not came out of nowhere and hit conventional wisdom you know like a two by four that people are afraid to think big in an odd way because they no longer trust their own judgment all of us have made terrible mistakes assuming what we assume based on our prior knowledge and that's everybody on every part of the political spectrum and so in some sense you could say there's a welcome lack of arrogance in the i don't know i mean i you know let's see how it goes you know when jerome powell says we'll see there's actually, you know, he's not like, I have an answer. I'm Alan Greenspan. I know everything. You know, it's more like, I don't know. This is hard. You know, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting, but on the demand side question and the question of sort of have the Keynesians won and the non-Keynesians lost. I don't know that you can look at what happened in this jobs number in the last three or four months and say that that's the conclusion that should be drawn because I don't think Democrats and leftists are drawing that conclusion at all. They think that all the demand side stuff end was ended too soon. There were all these emergency measures, particularly in relation to child poverty that were ended too soon that we are back to policies where the taxation levels are not high enough, where, you know, where the government is not taking enough uh, control of the economy and they seem more, you know, they Biden wants to take a victory lap, which is smart politically. I wouldn't say that I sense the economic left taking a victory lap over what happened on Friday. Maybe it's too soon. I don't know. Yuval, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, no one has a sense that they've really been winning much the last couple of years. So it's hard to point to things they've done that have worked all that well. And no one wants to say we even did the right thing around COVID, which I actually think in a lot of ways we did in terms of economic policy. Um, and so I, I I, think there's just this weird sense of everybody standing around thinking, well, that's great, but what's going to happen next month? I don't know. Um, 
and you know the 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 numbers get get uh, reclassified and recalculated. So who knows what this month's number will actually look like after next month's report? And I just I, I can't get over the sense of everybody just kind of the the world is made up entirely of observers. There's no there, there's no one who seems to think I understand what's going on here. Everybody says what Jerome Powell says of just like we'll see what happens next. And I, I can see the case that humility is good, but humility is good in response to some set of confident assertions that have to be moderated. If all we have is humility, then, you know, it's not economic policy. Um, I, maybe it's the best we can do. I, I'm a conservative. I'm willing to believe that. But it sure is strange. We need some irrational exuberance, you're saying, Kubal? <laughs> you <laughs> just, need some overconfident <laughs> academics at least to argue with. Yes. <laughs> or 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 thinkers like I mean I think you're right. I think the general argument you're making is that is that the 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 academy now is the enemy of independent thought rather than yeah. a supporter of it or a generator of it or and, something and it's like strangely that. hostile to intellectual ambition I mean this is not just true in economics or in foreign policy I mean I, I think about my my field of political science the kind of people you had in the middle of the 20th century where someone like Sam Huntington writes a great book in seven different fields. And, you know, makes a career or, or Daniel Patrick Moynihan or James Q. Wilson, those kinds of things would never be allowed now. There's no way you could have the kind of career that they had. Um, you could never get a job and you could never keep a job if you tried to write books that were useful to the public. Where were James Q. Wilson's academic journal articles? Um, and, you know, I think we pay a real price for this change in the basic character of, uh, of the social sciences in the academic world. And I, it, it's 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 a strange place for me to find myself is yearning for better academics, but uh, we could use it. <laughs> Fair enough. You know what you should be yearning for is better sheets because you can stay cozy all winter long with a set of buttery soft sheets from Bowl and Branch. It's been cold this weekend, right? Cold, cold everywhere. It was like zero degrees here. Kid in college in Massachusetts, it was minus 10 there. Doesn't that really make you think about a nice, great set of sheets to cozy up in that gets softer after every wash, made with the softest 100% organic cotton? That's Bowl and Branch sheets. You know, they they feel buttery to the touch. They're super breathable. They're perfect, therefore, for cooler and warmer months. So luxurious. They're loved by three U.S. presidents. Over 10,000 rave reviews. Designed to feel incredible for all sleepers. Come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes from Twin Up to California King. They fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags. So making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Bowling Press gives you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. Make the most of bedtime with Bowling Branch sheets. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code COMMENTARY at BowlingBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary okay you've all last thing uh you were probably in, in involved in the drafting of states of the union during your time in the domestic policy world of the second bush administration um or bush the younger administration or the w administration um everybody knows it's a terrible speech it always goes on way too long It'll be, this one will be 74 minutes long is my prediction uh, nothing will come out of it. We'll have some heroes in the balcony. Uh, weird because you know the heroes in the balcony is a is a is a something that was created in 1985 uh, by Reagan uh, to sort of uh, add a, add a little you know zest. And now it's become a cliche like everything else. Um, 
do you but this the fact of the chinese the fact that there is a new a massive news event right on the heels of it and the job stuff also right on the heels of it means that there there might be something actually fresh in the state of the union but probably not right yeah, I tend to think not, but I, I would say there, one peculiar thing about this year is that I think normally you would say that most of the public thinks they see too much of the president and hear too much from the president and they're sick of him. I actually don't think that's really true about Joe Biden. I think a lot of people kind of wonder, what's Joe Biden doing? Um, what what is what is he thinking about these days? <laughs> it's a strange place for the White House to find themselves in. I, I kind of think he has a lot to answer for. Um, he, he really needs to give the public a sense that he's on top of things, that he understands what the big questions are. And that's not a bad way to use this speech. I just wish I thought they were going to do that. Um, I think instead they're going to have the usual kind of, uh, you know, everybody gets a paragraph in and uh, three hours later you forget where it started. I think there could be a way for Biden, especially if he's running for re-election somehow, um, to to really give the country, you know, an interesting talk here about how he understands the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But, you know, I wouldn't bet on it. Noah, can you give an interesting talk if you are not yourself interesting? That's a very philosophical question. I, I know. Uh, it just occurred to me as, as, as you've all is saying it is, has Joe never Biden never said problem. anything that's independently interesting, aside from sort of like, he said what? He said what? Three states and three divide Afghanistan into three countries? Or something like that. Like, you don't exactly think about Joe Biden and say, boy, that was an interesting... He has a lot of thoughts about ice cream. That was an interesting though, thing that he did or said. Whereas, So we have two previews okay. of the State of the Union address yeah. in the New York Times. One, what he's going to say, which is really a letdown. And then two, what he really should say in the opinion side. Uh, the what he's going to say is trying to strike a mature co contrast to squabbling squabbling Republicans, and also this is a real sentence, uh, ensuring that sentences are not too long and do not include words he may stumble over. Among the examples they gave, Iranian. That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> it's it's going to be a tough one to avoid. Um, and then over at the opinion side, they had this. I just want to bring this to the podcast because it's just a note of levity. Josh Trigringle. I don't. Thank you. Terregiel? Sounds Tregiel. good to me. We're well known uh, for butchering people's names, so go on. <laughs> Fair enough. Don't put that in the State of the <laughs> Union copy. Um, so, yeah, he offers a, a, a portrait of madness, in my view, in the New York Times opinion side, saying that, you know, states of the Union are really just too boring. It's time to spice things up by really violating House rules to the extreme and introducing multimedia. So you could have like a backdrop of screens and the Secretary of State can pop in from Kiev and deliver a little bit here and then Joe Biden do a little bit there. And so this is all a violation of basically House rules and the Constitution. So people are trying to worry. This isn't in his, in his piece, but I saw for um, some news uh, reporters talking about this, really jazzed about the idea of this multimedia State of the Union presentation. And they say, well, maybe it's not a State of the Union at all. Maybe the president does kind of go back to Coolidge a little bit here, deliver this really wrote perfunctory note to the House to comply with the Constitution and then put on a State of the Union extravaganza where it's just a multimedia presentation from all across the country. It's like a two hour live special, like it's a, a 70s style Brady pageant. event special. Yeah. And that to me sounds like it's like be careful what you wish for, because, yeah, I mean, we get the State of the Union back to just a, a no frills written statement to Congress. But what do we get along with it? And it seemed to me that that 
was just inevitable. The second I read that idea, it's a matter of time before it comes to fruition. It's going to be J Lo I... on a stripper pole, like it, like what happened to the Super Bowl halftime. It's just that's a bad idea. We'll, we'll, we'll just. Yeah. It's bad. I... It's bad, bad, bad. And because you can count on the worst possible scenario occurring, that one's definitely yeah. coming. I totally disagree with you, and here's why. <laughs> I totally disagree that it will happen. So when Biden decided he was going to give his big gen de democracy speech, right? It was going to be a big democracy speech. It was going to be the speech that defended democracy forever. And he was going to travel. He wasn't just going to do it in the White House. He was going to travel to a grand setting, Union Station in D.C., beautiful, arched, you know, you know, Guastavino ceiling, just amazing setting where you could feel the history and the beauty of our heritage. And then he goes there and they set up like 20 flags and a, and, a, and a podium and flags behind him. And it could have been any room, anywhere. And then he gave this incredibly unimaginative speech. These people are not showmen. They well, are and not. The, don't forget the red, the red Philadelphia speech. Oh, the red and, and the yeah. red Philadelphia. Like yeah. they are not showmen. They don't know how to do that. They don't. They're, they don't. The they're Biden administration doesn't. Future administrations will. A Trump administration would have. Well, somebody Trump... come up with this idea. I think they would have taken it, run with it, and actually made it something where you'd be like, okay, oh, that was I don't kind know. of a Trump did something like that with the 2020 convention, with the Republican convention. And it was pretty lame in the end i mean it was sort of like a tv show they yeah, they had the speech they had we the don't want our politicians to be entertainers this is right. part of our problem with our politics is that too yeah. many of them think they are celebrities <laughs> it's a different role uh Look, my question is yeah, about, ahead. about yeah. the state of the union and i haven't it's tuesday I haven't, night by the way just that's what and we're I, talking about. I haven't read any of the um um predictions about but what, what's going to be in it but my questions are um First, uh, what sort of bones is he going to throw to the radicals on his side? And are we going to continue to hear about the threat to democracy and to what extent? A yes to the latter. We are going to hear a lot about the threat to democracy. This is their, it's their thing. You know, it's their greatest hit. Used it in 2022. They think it helped them. They think that Republicans in the House are crazy and are being crazy people. And so you just want to remind people that Republicans are crazy. And that's what the democracy is code for. The, the you know, we're fighting for democracy. And I don't I don't think he'll I mean, I don't know that he'll throw a lot of bones to his he doesn't have to worry unless he really believes it. he doesn't have to worry about his left. But here's what's interesting. Polling this weekend, ABC News. uh Washington Post poll. And uh, Biden's numbers have not improved over the last three months in any way, shape, or form. You could say it's because of the documents or it's because of this. But if we have a sizzling job market, we have income up, we have this, we have that, the country should be, uh, gas prices are down. We should have, people should be feeling better. And that should probably, that should help Biden. And he is in this poll losing to Trump 48 45. Uh, I, my jaw kind of hit the floor 
at that number, particularly since the Washington Post story about this only mentioned it in the 24th paragraph. They framed the whole story as people don't want a re, uh, you know, do not want a rerun of 2020. They do not want a Biden versus Trump race. And then it had this little detail, 58% of Democrats and Democrat leaners say they want another candidate in 2024. Um, that's nice. There is no other candidate, as Noah and I keep saying. There's nobody else unless he drops out. No one's going to challenge him. You should him. have no Kamala one's... Harris uh, speak for a minute and remind yeah. <laughs> people that there is no other candidate. There you go. I mean, really, no one's going to run at him from, from the left. It's that's not going to happen. The fear of Trump or DeSantis or whatever is too great. So, um, but he's he's not in great shape. He really isn't in great shape. I assume they know he's not in great shape, but maybe they think there's nothing you can do. Like this is just more, it's going to be three yards in a cloud of dust between now and November of 2024. Oh. All right. So you guys, Yuval in. thank you so much for joining us. It's fantastic to have you. As always, people should read his magazine, National Affairs, should watch for his writing wherever you can find fine writing. And we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.